0: I think what we need to do is explain how our principles of free speech, free inquiry, will help serve the cause of justice. The First Amendment, the constitutional freedom of speech and freedom of conscience that is the bulwark of our democracy. There was a passion in what was being said,
1: affirming this, this what people considered a sacred constitutional right freedom of speech and freedom of association. From the UC National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement, this is Speech Matters, a podcast about expression, engagement, and democratic learning in higher education. I'm Michelle Deutschman, the center's executive director and your host. As colleges and universities navigate the fallout from the ongoing conflict in the Middle East, we've had a front row seat to how expression can detrimentally impact individuals, groups, and the campus climate at large. Words, chants, posters, and other speech are sowing division on campus. Many students, staff, and faculty feel isolated, hurt, and afraid. Given this, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about how we will rebuild and repair from this moment. What tools do we have at our disposal and how do we learn to use them? While considering these questions, I attended a session about restorative justice at a recent UC campus safety symposium. Although restorative justice, RJ, as it's often referred to, is traditionally used as a way to respond to criminal acts, the session I attended showcased the benefits of using RJ in a higher education setting, at UC San Francisco, in fact. I wanted to learn more, which is why I invited the Director of the Office of Restorative Justice, Maria Hauchico, to be a guest on today's episode. I decided that our listeners and I could learn together which is what we will do after we turn to class notes, a look at what is making headlines. A lawsuit that was filed last year against UC Santa Cruz concerning their use of diversity statements in hiring was dismissed on standing grounds. In his lawsuit, John Haltgen, who holds a PhD in developmental psychology, said he would have applied to a position at UC Santa Cruz, but for the requirement of a statement regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion. He argued that requiring him to include this statement violated his First Amendment rights and claimed that the requirement served as a, quote, functional loyalty oath, unquote. When dismissing the case, the federal court judge explained that Mr. Haltigan did not have standing to sue, given that he never actually applied for the job. This controversy is far from over, however, since the judge did not rule on the merits of the issue. We discussed this case and other controversies around the use of diversity statements in Episode 7 of Season 2, Courting Controversy, Upcoming Cases on Campus Speech. In case you missed it, take a listen. It has been exactly one month since Senate Bill 17, which bans DEI offices in Texas higher education institutions, went into effect. The law bars public universities in the state from utilizing admissions or hiring and training practices based on race, ethnicity, gender identity, or sexual orientation. SB 17 requires proof of compliance in order for colleges and universities to access funding for the next fiscal year. While it is too soon to know the full effects of the bill, numerous DEI practitioners are leaving to find jobs elsewhere, and many remain confused about the limits of the law, creating an atmosphere of uncertainty and anxiety. This past month, the UC Regents considered a policy that would bar faculty and staff from posting political statements on university websites and other official online forums. The move comes after several departments across the university system posted statements regarding the Israel Hamas war. Critics of the proposal argue that the move curtails academic freedom, that the policy's language is too ambiguous and query how it will be enforced. At the end of a heated discussion about the proposal, the regents moved to table a vote until March. We will continue to update you on this story. In the meantime, back to today's guest.
0: Oh my gosh, I am feeling all sorts of nervousness. So I wonder if we could do a grounding together, Michelle.
1: I think that sounds wonderful. I hope you're planning to lead it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, it'll be um, um, interactive. So I'll I'll ask you a reflective question. Um, All right, so I'll just ask you to like sit comfortably however you are, wherever you're at. Just feeling the ground underneath you. Just feet firmly on the floor. (sighs) I could already feel that my heart is like pumping fast. So just thinking about how we can slow down a bit so we can be present in the moment. So if I could ask you to have your eyes closed. (sighs) And take a breath in and out. No effort to control your breath, but just allow it. To naturally go in and out. And then this time let's let's reflect on like what our intentions are. I know I've been thinking a lot about this as I've prepared for the podcast. Our intentions with each other in this hour.
1: My intention um, is really twofold. It's a little bit selfish in that I want to do some learning for myself. And I'm hoping generous of spirit in that I decided that rather than just talk with you, that I could open up this conversation and this opportunity for learning um, to our listeners. And I'm very grateful to you for being willing to do that. Um, Sometimes it's a little bit vulnerable, especially in like academic setting to admit that you don't know something but Mm. i'm just putting it out there i don't know very much about restorative justice and i feel like it's important that i know more
0: thank you thank you well how wonderful of a complimentary that is because my intentions was a gift of sharing because this knowledge of restorative justice while you Um, Welcome me to join your podcast. It's not my knowledge to own. It certainly was taught to me and I learned from so many people. And in the principles of RJ and reciprocity, this was part of sharing. So you came here to learn, I came here to share and in turn learn as well um, on how that might be a tool for folks when in dialogue and conversations with one another. And I know that's important engagement is such an important thing for your center. So thank you. No, thank you.
1: Um, And hopefully our listeners were able to take a moment in grounding and thinking about what, you want to get from this episode and while you're reflecting on that i'm going to take the liberty of telling you a little bit more about our esteemed guest maria hauchico she has worked at university of california san francisco since 2016 and she now serves as the director of ucsf's office of restorative justice practices She earned her doctorate in higher education administration from the University of West Georgia where her research focused on implementing restorative justice practices in graduate level education settings. She also holds a Master of Education in Student Affairs Administration from Clemson University and a BA from University of Georgia. I first had the privilege of meeting Maria and being exposed to her phenomenal work when she received a voice award from the center in 2021 And at that time, and correct me if I'm wrong, Maria, UCSF's Office of Restorative Justice had not yet been born, but Maria was dedicated to infusing RJ principles into life at UCSF. And we reconnected this past November, and I'm grateful that she's willing to join us today to share how RJ can assist us in this very trying time and as we move forward.
0: Thanks, Maria, and welcome to Speech Matters. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for having me and for the warm welcome. Speaking of the Voice Award, the grant money was like our seed funding. um, As it helped us in the early beginnings, the grant supported two trainings for restorative justice facilitators. They volunteered to be facilitators to lead community building circles and campus-wide healing circles to address national and global events that were impacting our community. Before we continue, I wanted to note to listeners, throughout the podcast, you'll hear me refer to restorative justice as RJ, for sure. Um, You'll also hear me say circle, which is a practice of coming together as a group. It's called a circle because participants are seated in a circle formation if we were meeting in person.
1: Okay, terrific. And we're going to delve more into some of those practices. But usually I, I like to start with people's sort of origin stories a little bit. And, and I'm not going to ask you to tell us about your entire life. But maybe if you could share with us a little bit of your journey to RJ um, and those practices and how it came to be that that is the focus of your career.
0: I smile at this question. It happened accidentally or perhaps one might even see it as destiny. So what I mean by accidental is that I did not seek out a restorative justice position, right? As a matter of fact, these types of roles as a full-time position are, are few. So if you recall the time around 2020 and 2022, at the height of the pandemic, And the United States is in this profound moment of national reckoning with its history of racial injustices. Again, it was the RJ Circles became the vehicle for folks to come together and heal and build community. So that's what I mean by accidental. It came at a time where it was very much a need of our community. And we met that need. What I mean by perhaps one might see this as a destiny is that the principles of RJ were always present in my values. I think about my Lolo and Lola, which means grandparents in Tagalog. They taught me the value of kapwa. It's a Filipino word that describes being with others or a community committed to one another. So a quick story about my grandparents. My Lolo and Lola created a neighborhood garden. They planted lots of vegetables at the vacant lot beside my childhood home, and they would gift vegetables to the neighbors. So a key principle of the value of kapwa, and similarly with restorative justice, is this concept of reciprocity. So community members are committed to one another, right? So when my grandparents needed help around the house, it was our neighbors who would routinely stop by the house and check in on them. So the value of kapla informs me daily of my interconnection with others. And lucky for me, the work that I do every day at UCSF and with my team aligns with the teachings of building a community that is committed to one another. So uh, this time I want to give a big shout out to my team. Um, UCSF Restorative Justice Practices, Jerry Sanchez, Edna Tamillo, Lindsay Berkowitz, and Ramsey Boley. Together, we do this work at UCSF and really um, give thanks and gratitude to them to the commitment they have for UCSF.
1: Thank you. And thank you for telling us that story about your grandparents. I think it's probably pretty unusual to have A livelihood where you actually get to embody and utilize the principles and values that not only that you were raised with, but that you want to employ in your personal life. And that's very inspiring. I think we need to just do a little bit of table setting before we get into some of the more challenging questions um, that I want to ask. And I think it would be helpful if you could, I know it's hard to give a primer in a short amount of time, but maybe take the listeners a little bit through sort of the intentional process of, you know, what happens before you actually have an RJ circle and maybe take an example um, and kind of show us what that would look like as you move through the different processes.
0: So the R.J. definition that has resonated the most with me is from Dr. Fanya Davis, a national voice for restorative justice and the co- co-founder of Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth. So Fanya Davis wrote a book on R.J. called The Little Book of Race and Restorative Justice. In the book, she defines R.J. as restorative justice emphasizes bringing together everyone affected by wrongdoing to address needs and responsibilities and to heal the harm to relationships and community. Restorative justice is also a proactive relational strategy to create a culture of connectivity where all members of a community thrive and feel valued. This definition informs the approach we take to implementing RJ at UCSF. Dr. Davis's definition has two parts to RJ, a proactive approach and a responsive approach. So examples of a proactive approach are community building circles during new student orientation or circles during team retreats to have an intentional dialogue to get to know one another and strengthen relationships. Examples of a responsive approach are restorative conversations to address relational harm let's say two individuals were in a conflict and an altercation was witnessed by the team. So using a restorative justice framework means we would first want to identify individual and community needs, discuss the impact of the harm before we even dive into problem solving. Because if we problem solve without getting curious about the needs and impact, then we're really just problem solving from our own lived experience, our own lens, right? And, and what's important is understanding those are part of the community. Often I am asked, what is it that we're re- restoring? So as a relational strategy, um, our work is to restore the respect, dignity and care, returned back to all the individuals involved. So that's to the person that was impacted. That's the person that impacted the individual in the community. And that's also the community members that are part or have witnessed the event. So what is important to note is that restorative justice is grounding in Indigenous ethos and teachings. Indigenous people and worldviews, as you know, are not homogenous. However, the values and knowledge of interconnectedness, that we are all connected with one another, are present in many cultures. So restorative justice practice in the United States, in the criminal justice system, K through 12, higher education, workplace settings, has documented origins in Indigenous communities. Example from First Nations people from Canada, the Maori people of New Zealand, communities in sub-Saharan and West Africa. So I share this to continue honoring RJ's indigenous ethos and teachings, that these practices are borrowed practices. And how do we continue to honor them in how we practice it now?
1: I think that's great that we're having not just a discussion about what RJ looks like in this moment, which is sort of our point of entry, but we're able to then move back to talk about its history and the history of how it's evolved. Before we move on, I think I want to ask a question that I'd... I think I know the answer to, but I want to make sure our listeners do, which is about this idea of voluntariness. And I think it's important to make sure people understand that this is a voluntary practice. Is that accurate? I just want to make sure that, you know, people, I think there's a lot of myths about restorative justice. Like nobody is making anybody be part of an RJ
0: circle. Yes. Matter of fact, we call it an invitation that we're inviting you in that conversation. That's That's how voluntary it is. And when the invitation is given, people are allowed to say no, like an RSVP, right? No, yes, maybe, or that you've changed your mind later. It's not a fixed time because healing takes time and wanting to engage in a conversation that's asking for vulnerability takes time. So it may start with a no. And then the invitation is always there. But what you're naming here is that it can't be mandated or mandatory, right? So, so yes.
1: And then another follow-up is, I'm thinking about in higher education institutions, they're kind of hierarchically structured, and I'm imagining that health-related specialties are like that too. And so one of my questions is, how do you give an invitation without there being power dynamics or, or pressure? Or, or maybe you can't, or maybe you acknowledge them. I guess I'm asking you like, yeah, what what do you do?
0: Yes, we do have to acknowledge that um, power dynamics and those hierarchy exists. That's often what possibly impacted and informed the conflict to begin with. So we name that. We don't shy away from that conversation. We name it and say like, how, does, how did the power dynamics play in the conflict? Um, what happened there, get really curious of the positionality of people and how that might have contributed to the conflict or um, the incident, whatever it was. And so I'm curious, tell me more about what that might mean for you in terms of the hierarchy at you That's a great question. And, and I, I want to make sure that your intentions. I'm answering.
1: No, you did. I think one of the things I think a lot about is I deal with speech and expression, and you know, oftentimes the speech is protected, which means the hard work mm. isn't about how the law helps us. The hard work is how, as a community, do we re- respond to really ugly, hateful, and demeaning speech? And one thing that some universities have put into place are bias response teams
0: right? Mm -hmm. So
1: where people report that they feel harmed or um, hurt by speech, and then the university might try to create a a response, whether it's just reaching out one-on-one, whether it might be some kind of community town hall or engagement, or it might be inviting in the person who shared the words that were hurtful in for a conversation. And in this case, it's a lot of times it's administrators and students. And so Mm -hmm. there's been some lawsuits where people have said, you can't really expect anybody to come in for a voluntary conversation if they're administrators. And I have personally mixed feelings about that because I feel like while I acknowledge those power dynamics, I also feel like to me, it seems like that's part of the responsibility of an educational institution is to say to people, we're not here to punish you, but we just want to make sure you understand the impact of your expression. And so I think I was thinking about that and how you might get around that, given that you do have like a director position, right, in the mm-hmm. university.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. I think what I, when I, when I was listening in, in your storytelling and, and examples that you brought in, what comes to mind is what shifts in the restorative justice practices. I'll use, um, uh, I'll introduce a new term, like a restorative mindset shift from a punitive mindset. Like that's what we're working a lot at UCSF. The shift from this punitive mindset of like what was the violation, who was harmed, what law and guidelines were, were violated, um, who did it, and what are their punishment, right? The mindset shift is being curious about what happened in that in that dynamic between, between us. Um, what was the impact on you and others? What is needed so that we can come back together and work together? And so that conversation first needs to happen with folks who were impacted. So another tenant over sort of restorative justice is centering the needs of the impacted party and getting really curious about what is the unmet needs and how maybe what is needed in that conversation. So we're doing a lot of prep work. You know, this is a first draft thought in my mind. I've thought about this a lot. So I want to say it was almost like fourth draft. But um, this concept of like the skills, the skill sets that's needed in debate and discussion, and how is that different of discussions where we're talking about harm. We're using the skills that we're learning in classrooms about influencing and debating or skill sets in conference rooms about, getting the other side to understand you and flip their thoughts, right? We're using that skill sets to have discussions where it's really about emotions and feelings and being understood and heard and seen. So we're almost like intellectualizing emotions in a way, but that's not where it lives. Our emotions don't live in our intellect. It lives in our bodies. It lives in in our lived experience. It lives in how I was feeling at the time when um, when the incident happened, or whatever it is that you want to. It's an example in your mind, but those are different skill sets, right? And so, or a uh, different tools to to have um, empathetic listening or discussion where we're present. And so, what I mean by that is there is a lot of pre work that needs to happen first before asking folks to invite them in a conversation because trust needs to be built first. Way before we start talking about like, when you did that, that impacted me, right? I think that's such
1: an important point to be emphasized because it's something that that has struck me um, when I heard you present in November is this idea of how much time and preparation goes into it, right? I think in our society, we're so used to instant gratification, right? The ding, the text, you know, hearing from people right away that it's important to realize that that's not part that's not what this is and I think that even might be a misunderstanding I can imagine people being like oh okay and then we're all just going to go and sit in a circle and it's like no that is like that's the end you know of our close to the end and I kind of want to ask you if you can maybe touch on some of the other types of myths that you think people might carry around about RJ and how Mm -hmm. it works
0: Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm I'll continue on with what you've just said. There is a misconception that sitting in circles is only to talk about feelings. Um, So I'm going to ask you to do a reflection. You don't have to share out Michelle, it's just in your mind. (laughs) Think about a time when you caused a harm. Your behavior impacted your relationship with them and you want that relationship to be repaired. Your instinct might first be to apologize, to say I'm sorry. Where does that live? That I'm sorry lives in your body. You just want it out. You just want the ick feeling to be out of your body. So you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Now, asking you to switch, think about a time when someone harmed you. Their behavior impacted your relationship with them and that trust was lost. The last thing you want to hear anyone saying to you is, I'm sorry I've upset you. Or worse, I'm sorry you were upset. You don't want to hear an apology that doesn't acknowledge the root of the harm you experience. Which was here the loss of trust. We let me like have you think about these hypothetical people talking to one another. Where would you start? right? Do you start at the harm, I'm sorry I've upset you, and then now you're having to defend, actually, no, I wasn't upset. This is what I was feeling. So often that is where we start. And so restorative justice is more than talking about the feelings and that moment, upset, no, I'm not upset, and defending that feeling, right? It gives people tools to engage in a conversation to, one, face the harm they caused, to take accountability for the impact of their actions, right? It gives people tools to communicate the harm they experience in a way that centers their unmet needs and hopes for what it takes to feel restored. So not everyone is readily equipped to have these dialogues, but we're asking folks to say like, hey, this this really um, important topic is, is at the forefront of everyone's mind. Everyone is in different Um, points of the continuum. Let's have a discussion about each of our points.
1: I don't want, I hope it's okay to jump in. I I definitely felt like what really resonated with me was this idea of accountability Mm -hmm. and that an apology where someone, at least for me, is accountable um, for their actions, that feels very different than not. And I mean, I definitely want to do, I I strive to do some of this in parenting, which is like, Mm -hmm. look, I have a preteen daughter and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of apologizing about tone and respect. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to inculcate is that it's not enough just to say sorry, right? Mm -hmm. How do we get to the root of like, why did you say it that way you know what's mm-hmm. going on how can we maybe try to you know do it differently and and it's really hard because i'm probably not that well equipped and she certainly isn't well equipped and so i'm hoping that by trying to role model some of these ways of talking about things cuz i can see how an apology in society it, it's very overused
0: i think mm-hmm. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. I mean, oh, I could be in a soapbox with the word I'm sorry. Like, it could even be like you nudge someone, you say I'm sorry. I was like, well, no, I was in your way. Why would you say sorry to me?
1: Well, that's um, a whole right? other conver- right. another
0: conversation, especially
1: about I'm always telling my colleagues at work, especially women that we're sort of trained to say I'm
0: sorry all the time. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's a whole different thing. Okay,
0: so yeah. but with what you're saying about your daughter, is like where does that live, right? Like you care about your daughter. So you want to say, like that, I didn't mean to do that. And so taking it a step further for accountability is asking yourself, Well, what am I apologizing for? Do I know enough? Do I know enough information? And if I don't, I need to be curious about that because how would I know? Accountability is knowing what you'll do differently after the I'm sorry, right? So I'm going to slow down and say that again. Accountability is knowing what you're doing after you've said I'm sorry, right? Like it's knowing like I'm sorry, I I was um, going from one thing to the next, whatever it might be. It's, it's, at, it's, it's understanding like what behavior has changed after the apology. And so we got to slow down,
1: Well, we're in this very fast-moving society, so even slowing down is a challenge. So you mentioned Dr. Davis, and I actually had a quote from her in one of these questions that I want to share and see about your response, which is that, quote, justice is a healing ground, not a battleground, which is so beautiful, especially in the moment we're in right now where, to me, everything feels like a battleground, not just physically, but like, in terms of like, you're either with us or against us, you're Mm -hmm. pro, you're con. And I'm wondering, what steps do you take to ensure that the RJ process is implemented in a way that doesn't introduce further harm to any of the participating parties?
0: Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what does that quote mean to you? Justice is a healing ground, not a battleground. What does that mean to you?
1: I don't know that I'm ready to say what it means to me. I can just say that it changes my conception a little bit. And when I think of justice, certainly in the legal sense, when I think of sort of social justice warriors, there's this idea, right, that it's a big fight. And that's a lot of how it's been framed. And I'll be honest, I haven't really processed what this other conception of justice would would mean.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you're at a great point to start to think about that, even the way you frame that. So here's another quote I'll give you from Fanya Davis that we love in our team. And that speaks to what your early, you know, musings of of her, the quote you shared. We do justice with people and not to them. Right, The with is so important. And if we do justice with people, then it's to me... It's bringing folks in the discussion. How did the community fail you? How did we allow for this event to happen in our environment? What can we do to help you so it doesn't happen again? Right? That's the with part. The to to them is our sanction rubric, right? It's the, if you do this, then this is what happens to you. If you do this, this is what happens. The justice with people is asking what is it, what's needed, what's needed for repair, for restoration so that um, you feel restored, your respect, dignity, and care is returned back to you. So part of your question was, what do we do to ensure um, that we don't further harm folks? So one of the ways uh, we ensure that we don't introduce further harm is we do a lot of pre-work before bringing parties together. Um, I was hearing that that is what resonated you, with you with the presentation I had in November. And and that's important part is that we assess the readiness of folks before bringing folks together so that folks are really clear what it is that is an unmet need and what are they and then also the other party taking accountability. We also set clear expectations and create group agreements on how folks will engage with one another in the circle. So that's the justice with people, right? The participants, whether it's community building circles or restorative conversations, we start with really being clear what are our agreements with one another. Now imagine every committee, every classroom, every group and team you're in from even if you have a team and then a subcommittee and a subcommittee of the subcommittee and Each of those groups have different group dynamics. And we are just using each of our individual's expectations and applying it to one another and hope for the best. So imagine if we created group agreements in each of those communities we're in and saying, how are we gonna be with one another, right? How will we engage with one another? Um, So we, we really take time on ensuring that. And also, I think about that um, this concept of healing takes time. We don't rush folks to have their restorative conversation before they're ready. It definitely takes time. Sometimes we do pre-meetings and all of the pre-meeting work, and it will take three to five months before we ever come together, right? Because the harm didn't happen overnight, so how are we going to address situations of of emotional impact in like a week, right? So matter of fact, when folks say the sense of urgency, I slow down even more. Urgency is a symptom to me that ooh we are rushing this. This is performative act. We are not ready to come together, and that signals like um, possibilities of harm that might happen. So we we definitely take it's the slowing down seriously.
1: And I want to, I have two, I mean, I have so many follow-ups, but I follow up <laughs> to that because I can imagine people in the university system saying, we don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. Right? Students graduate, they go on to mm-hmm. different classes, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like, how can we scale this? It's not going to work. And I'm wondering what you say to those people.
0: Right. So there's a, a balance. You're going to have folks that say, We don't have time for that. And then you find a group of folks, faculty making decisions of, like, the harm happened in my classroom, then the restoration happens in my classroom time. Right? They took three hours, three times of their classroom to address the harm that happened in their classroom. That was important enough because that was learning. That, was, that that um, it aligned with the objectives of the classroom. My point here is, yes, there is this institution and organization that uh, values productivity and urgency, right? That is what we know of, of higher education institutions, um, the big turnover of community, like you mentioned, graduating. But if we're using those same tools that are harming us, again and again and again at what point do you say enough that's not working right and it could be that wait let's take time and orientation to orient folks to the values of the institution and have folks have a sense of belonging by getting to know one another that takes time but that taking time allows for folks to get to know one another before the harm happens. Imagine your first conversation with your hallmate being the harm itself. My favorite question to that, when folks say um, it it takes too much time and, you know, community building is not important, my question to folks is how do you repair a relationship where there wasn't one to begin with?
1: And I'm just going to jump in and say, What you just said, I think, is something that has been coming up all the time in this moment where I'm being asked all the time, well, how do we get these groups of students, pro-Palestinian, pro-Israel, Muslim, Jewish, to sit down and dialogue? And my thought is, this is not a moment to be having people sit down. You had to have done the work a long time ago. And it goes back to what you said in the beginning it seems to me, about the proactive and the reactive approach. The more you invest in the proactive approach, hopefully the less time you have to spend investing in the reactive approach. And it's just about getting people to see the value of that investment. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I'm imagining people might be thinking who are listening to this, and I know that it's something I have thought about your work and about you and your expertise, Mm -hmm. is sort of like, well, I can't do this because I'm not an expert. I haven't been schooled in these principles and these ideas. And so one of my questions for you is, what do you say to someone who really wants to bring some of the RJ principles into their classroom or their office or their relationships as a way to break it down so that it doesn't feel like it's all or nothing? You're either, you know, the director of the office or you're just like, forget it. I can't do it.
0: I love the framing of that because that is what folks who are trained in RJ think about. They're trained elsewhere. They come back to their institutions and say, like, where do I start? It's all or nothing. It's either we do all the things Maria just named or nothing at all. And I say, no, that's not where we started. That's not. We started in the middle of a pandemic because folks were like, I'm isolated by the team I saw every day from eight to five, and now we're in Zoom boxes, right? And so I started doing community building circles, meaning an invitation of Zoom for one hour, and folks from different teams came together even and talked about how really difficult this was.
1: There's some comfort in my hearing that what you're saying is that the people who are trained also feel like that. Yes. So I guess my follow-up would be if you were going to, give a tangible something that each person might think about doing who listens Mm -hmm. um, to help them ground themselves just a little bit um, Mm -hmm. or a little bit more in RJ. What are some of those things that might be, I know for me, it's going to read Dr. Davis's book that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a small step. So what are some other steps, especially, I would say, I think the majority of our listeners are probably in administrative roles um, mm-hmm. like yours.
0: Yeah, so it's important to share early beginnings because, to your point, it does, it may feel overwhelmingly impossible for folks to turn over from this mindset to be a more restorative mindset like I could understand how overwhelming that could be because we live that we live that currently right so I'm reminded that the theme of the voice initiative was breaking barriers and addressing barriers that harm a community and still that's needed today right and that was a 2021 theme so UCSF did that by first training facilitators to facilitate community building circles and that was intentional That was an intentional first start using a proactive community building work. Even before we were ever prepared to offer responsive approaches like a restorative circle. Because certainly folks were like, can we do a restorative um, uh, circle? And I say, we're not ready. I was was doing it outside of my full-time role when I was in student life. And so it was really bringing in more folks in our community who have similar thoughts. It's bringing in colleagues who were doing community building already and utilizing a restorative justice framework to name the importance of community building. The way I talk about restorative justice is that it's not that it's something separate from us. That's, that's I think that's the most important thing that I would share with anyone who's thinking about implementation into their institution is don't talk about RJ as if it's separate from what your institution is already doing. There's already beautiful work being done in universities and institutions about community building um, and restoration. It's And it's about putting a framework into that and naming and connecting each of those initiatives together, right? Um, so with that shift of mindset, it's, it's about exercising the muscle of empathetically listening and vulnerability sharing stories, right? Um, it's really providing this opportunity again and again. And even our faculty engaging in circles, they were like, oh, that was different. That's what I hear a lot. That felt different. That felt different and new, a different way of dialogue, but still getting to a place of like intentionally learning about one another. So an example of this is holding a circle for a department um, to ask the community members what support is needed to feel comfortable and safe engaging in difficult conversations. Start there. Don't start with a difficult conversation. Start with what is needed. What do we first need to do for you to feel comfortable? And maybe what your community shares is like, well, first, I need to get to know one of you what are your values, then that's your first start, right? Have a circle that just shares values and exercise that muscle so that it prepares you then to have those, you know, what you're saying, engaging in difficult conversations. Um, I do suggest picking up the book, the little book of Race and Restorative Justice. We give this book to all of our facilitators. Um, chapter two is my most favorite which it talks about um, this notion of interconnectedness. So it really grounds you outside of just the practice, but like the mindset shift on it. Um, One tangible thing that each individual can do is practice slowing down. That could mean doing a grounding exercise or breathing activity before jumping into meetings after meetings. Uh, Administrators that are listening. I imagine your day, 8 a.m., budget call. 9 p.m. 101 conversation with your team. 10 10 p.m. There's a 10 yeah 10 a.m. meeting with a student. 11 meeting with another colleague. 12 Maybe you have lunch. One you have a meeting about an initiative. Like how crazy is that day shifting from one type of topic to the next? And when, by the time you're in your two o'clock meeting, your mom, who that requires your full presence and conversations of impact and harm, your headspace is still in your 8 a.m. meeting, right? So, how do we arrive and actually be present in each of our meetings so that we are not juggling many emotions at a time when what is in front of us is what is calling us to re- respond to?
1: Well, maybe this is a, a silly. Um example, but remember when all the Zoom structure meetings changed so that there's five, supposed to be five minutes in between. Mm
0: -hmm. And my
1: experience has been that most often people end up not honoring that, myself included. Mm -hmm. But I'm sort of thinking to myself, what if I really did say, you know, this meeting actually is supposed to end at 1255. And so, and then I actually tried to use some of that time to recalibrate right um not just run to the restroom get a glass of water inhale some food but to actually do something like we did at the beginning you know how might my day be different and you know what i will endeavor to do that and then i can report back to you will you let me know i will let, i will let you know um Good. 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 definitely so i mean my instinct is that like we could keep talking for mm-hmm. another 45 minutes 45 hours but I can't keep you on um, forever, and I I think this is just the beginning of hopefully the journey for lots of people, and I know it's sort of part of my own journey that I'm going on. I think what I would love to end on is I'm a little hesitant to use the word success because I'm not sure that everything has a measure of success, but given that we are in a sort of success-oriented environment, I think my question for you is what does that look like in RJ?
0: We are certainly interested in understanding long-term impact. Um, So we talked about data and metrics, and we are working on how we might measure the impact of RJ. So if you are an RJ practitioner listening to this podcast or a researcher that studies long-term impact of initiatives and programs, please reach out to me. Let's bring our minds together on this. but I'll share short-term successes, and we've got plenty to celebrate. Success is our chancellor and his leadership cabinet participating in a community building circle. Success is a big shout out to Dr. Deanne Duncan, who's the Assistant Dean for Diversity and Learner Success in the graduate division at UCSF. She has um, led the establishing and coordinating of community building circles for doctoral graduate students. Success is this year marking its fifth year of welcoming our students in in their first months. And sometimes their second day, first day is like administrative orientation. Second day is community building circle with their faculty director and administrator. Um, Success is training over 100 plus facilitators from physicians, nurses, campus leaders, staff, faculty, and our students. And this number grows every year. They use the skill set of circle facilitation with their teams, classrooms, committees, home life. I love that one of our faculty used it in their uh, committee that they led and they did grounding community building uh, activity and community agreements um, before they started the work that they were doing together and allowed them to like level set and get to know one another and help the work. Um, with students and other faculty almost more seamless because they had a foundation to work off of. So I love that it's being used informally in spaces and not just, you know, the formalized circle practice. So it's, it's wonderful that um, it's being integrated in those ways. So that's what success looks like. Start small, start in spaces you control. And, and it just blooms from there you're offering something different.
1: That is such a hopeful note to end on and I think unfortunately sometimes I feel like hope is in a short supply these days and um, it feels doable at least to start and I think that's so important and I cannot tell you how grateful I am that you are willing to share uh, yourself and your story and your expertise with our listeners. And my mind is already percolating about uh, ways that maybe we can partner going forward. And so I just want to, again, share my gratitude with you.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: In case you missed it, the Center is now accepting applications for our 2024-2025 Class of Fellows. Please visit our website at freespeechcenter.universityofcalifornia.edu for more information. Applications are due by Friday, March 15th. Tune in next month for a conversation with all-in-campus Democracy Challenge Executive Director Jennifer demago Goldman on student voting trends as we barrel towards the 2024 presidential election. Talk to you next month.